Welcome back to the Upfront podcast with me, Katie Hannon. On Monday night's Upfront programme, we had a really good discussion on housing and the challenges that are facing an entire generation now and possibly the generation coming after them again and just getting a roof over their head, whether that's a rental house or uh, getting on the property ladder itself. Like We had people like one of our guests, Megan Scully. Uh, she really struck a chord with people describing how she has had to give up a full-time job and actually leave where she was living in Limerick City to go home and move it back in with her parents. So, you know, we often talk about the housing crisis as an intractable problem. So for today's podcast, we wanted to get a sense of how they are managing this uh, in other major cities around the world uh, and just get a sense of, you know, where are the solutions? Where are they getting it right? What are we doing wrong? So on that, I am delighted to be joined by Philip Lawton, who is an assistant professor in global urbanism at Trinity College. Philip, we often, uh, you know, view and, and think about and talk about our housing crisis here as if it's something that's unique to us. Mm-hmm. How do we compare, when, uh, you know, globally? Yeah, I mean, I think I think when when we start to say how do we compare, it's really important to put a few things up front is that if we say that, well, whether we're on a par or whether we're doing, say, inverted commas, better than other places, that's not to... I suppose not to downgrade what what people are experiencing whatsoever, um, but it's just important for us to situate what's happening here within wider global processes, and really that's that's key to this. You know, it's 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 not just a crisis in terms of housing. Some people would label it an, label it an urban crisis. Of course, it extends beyond the cities, but it's a number of different things that are coming together in in different in different contexts in different ways. If if that makes sense, if you look at say. Place in the global north, you know, uh, anywhere like from San Francisco to Dublin, then into other European cities. Uh, you can go back, say, 20 or 30 years and look at it in the context of the sudden kind of growth in their economies. And so it's it's not just the kind of the side effect of these issues, but it's deeply embedded within them. And so if, you're, if your city is growing according to a particular trajectory, as cities have since the late 1990s, early 2000s, when we see essentially the growth of what would become the tech economy. Uh, and so, you know, work we did about 12 years ago looked at what was labelled then as the creative knowledge economy, and that would become what we see now as the tech economy. So people working in anything from kind of architecture to design and, and these sorts of areas, and then into kind of the tech economy, and then into kind of you know things like marketing and then market research. These any of these sorts of areas, you know, so we see a kind of a boom within the within these areas, banking sector and so on, finance and so on. And so within cities that are experiencing the growth in, the, in those areas over the last 15, 20, if not more years, we also see embedded within this a crisis in terms of housing. And so it's an agglomeration effect, essentially, that we're witnessing. Well, is, it, is it a pe- peculiarity of the tech boom and, and places like Dublin, obviously, where, you know, all of so, so much of that industry has, has uh, been based? Well, I would see it as being directly interwoven with this, yeah, because if you look at other places that are experiencing a growth in, in, in these sorts of companies in the last number, number of decades, you see something similar. Now, in the Irish context, and I think that that's why we're feeling it so acutely here, is there's a number of different elements that come into it. It's that, in, in a way, it's a sort of a superstorm of different things, you know. So, so that's why I'm, I'm reluctant to say it's just a housing crisis. And, and if, for me, there's, there's a kind of an, the term urban crisis that comes from a very, very different context, but the 1970s in, in the US, but it's a kind of a, a different form of urban crisis in as much as we see the impacts of 
having a, a significant amount of investment into one particular industry, you know, uh, in particular places, we see an, an impact in terms of housing. So housing obviously then starts to be dictated largely by people working in those industries. Uh, you see it's part of a wider ecosystem, essentially, of that at a local level, local authorities start to respond to that. That's the city image that they desire. I really want to kind of ladyboard this for people because it's so interesting that it comes hand in hand with that industry. Because obviously we see ourselves as very successful and it's part of the, the good news story about what has happened in, in the Irish economy in the last 20 years. And is it because, am I right and am I, am I understanding you right, that it's because when you have people coming in and obviously the, the wages in that industry are are particularly high, that you then get housing chasing those wages that is built for people who, you know, who can afford that. Yeah. And and so kind of in the early years, you know, you see that you see this very much impacting in central areas, then gradually, you know, that the term that's been used by and coined by Richard Florida in 2002, 2003 is the creative class. And there's various different critiques of the impact of the creative class. You know, it's, it's celebrated initially. Uh, and then actually in 2015 or so, Richard Florida himself, you know, looked, turned around and said, well, actually, you know, the, the influence on these cities, you know, it's having, he'd see it as a side effect. I think I'd see it as being embedded within it, you know, is that, that the housing structure, you know, the housing realities in those cities are becoming such that it's actually becoming highly uneven in terms of its, of its impact. Uh, and so, you know, while in the earlier years, it was kind of that almost the trope of kind of, you know, singles or sort of couples living in the city centre, Gradually, then we see an impact and kind of an, an Irish context, you could argue, maybe sort of post boom. So we're in the if we're looking at kind of the global league table of shame in terms of homelessness and, you know, affordability, not just homelessness. Obviously, we're talking about the overall housing situation in, in Ireland. Where where would we where would we figure? It's interesting for me, having seen these things develop over the last sort of two decades or so, whereas, you know, when you're reading literature from the late 1990s, early 2000s, looking at US cities and talking about the levels of homelessness, you know, that's something that to me was always out there somewhere else. Whereas you look in the Irish context now, tents on the canal or whatever it might be, and then kind of reactions to that coming from whether it be the local authorities or the Gardaí, for example, to, to move this problem, you know, kind of elsewhere, if you see what I mean. And so, you know, now... They are. We are comparable to those, those those other places. And again, we need to be careful in terms of how we com- compare ourselves or how we kind of position ourselves against those. But it, but it is it is a it's a genuine crisis and it's of it's enormous proportions. Is there a model? Actually, let me give you an upfront question first. Uh, uh, we find out a little bit more about you. Uh, uh, where? Give me a number between one and fifteen, Philip. Seven. Tell me something you miss about someone you've lost. Yeah, no, an uncle, a, a very close uncle passed away about a year and a bit ago. And I think talking to him about you know, just general support and advice uh, would, would, would always be welcome. What's your own background? Are you, you know, from an academic background yourself or, you know, where, where what would have been the biggest influence? Because it's a, an interesting area you ended up going into. Yeah, I think there's a combination of, of factors. Uh, my, my dad was a seafarer uh, and at sea. So I suppose being on the ship with him and being in ports at a young age has always kind of uh, struck a chord. Um, and my mum is an interesting character. Um, she is an antiques dealer, but, uh, you know, kind of when we were growing up at home, I, I've, I, lived, I, I grew up in Dunleary um, in kind of the centre of the town. And that had a massive influence on, on me, I think, in terms of from a very young age being, being interested in these issues. And, and Actually, Dunleary is a very interesting town, uh, you know, it's borough in, in, in Dublin. I, I live very close to there now. I, yeah. I mean, I absolutely love it. 
But it has both sides of it, doesn't it? it Absolutely. Ha- yeah. Growing up there in the 1990s, you know, kind of people would have sort of slagged me, you know, it's Dundreary or, you know, or, and now it's a boom town. And, you know, it, again, you can see the affordability crisis playing out there. And it's it's changed so dramatically in that period. What's fascinating to me is just looking at Georgia Street, which if people don't know, is there's a, like the main kind of um, commercial thoroughfare running <clears throat> right the way the full length of Dunleary. Yeah. Um, and you see how it's being gentrified from the People's Park, which is the public park down near Sandy Cove, the, the yeah. you know, very much the more shishi chic end of uh, end of things. And it's like you can almost see it gradually creeping up. George yeah. Street and, yeah. uh, you know, taking over that side of, of the town. It, it's a fascinating town in that regard. And again, kind of, you know, it, the, the temporal dynamics at work there, I think, are really interesting because you see, say, Monkstown on one side and Glass Tool on the other side. And they're two kind of picture postcard examples of it's not even gentrification. It's something much more than that, I think. Um, going back to the overall uh, issue in Dublin, if you were Minister for Housing tomorrow, what would be the first thing you would do? No, I think I, I honestly think that, that, that the way in I the way in which I think about this is is through is through kind of the, the lens of land. And I think that if you look at other places that we're compared to very often and say Amsterdam, Vienna, these sorts of places, it's the land question. And and for me, the public ownership of land, if you look back at the history of those cities, and one of the primary things that gave them the ability, and of course it it is political and it's always political. Um, and so, you know, whether it's Red Vienna in, in the 1920s or whether it's the, the role of, you know, you've kind of got this 20s, 40s cord in, in Amsterdam where you have vast amounts of, of, of public housing built, according to the Amsterdam School, as it's called at that time. Um, and just to kind of put that, you know, to, to visualize that, it's, it's essentially that we get a similar typology in, in an Irish context that, that's built in, in, in that period. It's, it's not just copied and pasted, but it has a, a massive influence both in you know, the UK and Ireland in terms of design and so on. But that's, that's allowed through the public ownership of land and even the private development of land in a, in a Dutch context through a kind of a land tenure system. It has been, you know, it's been largely controlled by the local state. And so that power of the local estate to control land has a massive influence in terms of ensuring what we see as a kind of a sustainable, compact type of city that people want. is In terms of public ownership and, and developing public land, obviously that was the kind of the initial thinking behind the Land Development Agency. Will that make a major impact as far as you know? Because people have been quite critical of some elements of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the strength that they have in the coming years. I mean, when the report that they, 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 they had came out a few months ago, I had a, I had a quick look at some of these kind of lands that were in public ownership. And there was a lot of talk about port lands, old forts and so on that might be reused, uh, bus, de- bus depots. But actually, when you look when you look at it and, and, and the amount, apart from a fairly large bank around Ballymun, there's very little land within, within the centre of Dublin that's in public ownership that would be feasible to develop and realistic to develop. Uh, and so when you compare that to when you go around the edge of the city and you look at the lands that are owned by people like Cairn, uh, these sorts of development companies, you know, that the, that the, the power is lying elsewhere, you know, and, and, and the, there may well be land that's owned by other agencies, other arms of the state that could be brought in. But the ability to actually implement that, I think, is at the moment seems, seems quite limited. And is that a constitutional matter then? Do we need to go back the Kenny report, you know, about property rights? 
Potentially, but you know, again, and I'm not you know an expert in terms of in terms of the constitution, but but you know the, the potential to say compulsory purchase land and bring it into state ownership. I'll give you I'll give you one example. You know, if you, if you look at Adamstown, which has been developed since circa 2003, and Adamstown has the potential to be you know an ideal kind of development. Now it, it, it had it had issues in 2008, went through the crash. The way in which it's been repackaged, you could possibly question that in terms of who's bought up the different parcels of land. But when you go there and you're in the train station, you're looking at the part that's being developed and that's going ahead at the moment. It's come back on stream. That's one thing. You look on the other side, you see four large fields and these are in private ownership at the moment. They're zoned agriculturally. Like that land, and I know it was mooted. There was a kind of a, a newspaper report a number of months ago that a report, I didn't, you know, I couldn't find out where, where it came from, had come, come to cabinet about 14 different sites around Dublin that had been identified. And so I'm only assuming that, that potentially that's a, that's a location that's been identified. But in terms of ensuring that affordable housing can be built there, that if we, you know, if we're serious, there's talk very often of kind of trying to promote a Vienna model or trying to promote cost rental. You know, if we're serious about these things, a parcel of land like that should now be in public ownership from, from my perspective. And just to be clear to people, the Vienna model, which they hear about a lot, and I think people assume everyone knows who we're talking about, just in like in two sentences. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, the, it comes from a period from 1923 to 1934 where the state delivered 64,000 housing units via 400 kind of apartment blocks, essentially. Um, and so it, it ensures, like up until today, there's about 43% of housing within Vienna is protected f- you know, from, from the market rate, if you see what I mean. It's means tested, but it ensures that there's a, a form of safety net um, and also that, that social housing isn't what we would refer to as residualized i.e. that it's, it's much more normal for people to live in what we might call public housing or, or, or social housing. Um, and so that kind of stigmatization that you often associate with, with public housing in the UK, Ireland and the US uh, isn't as much of an issue. Now, they drift, they, it's, it's important to say they've kind of moved away a little bit from that. Uh, there's a greater reliance on non-profit kind of housing associations and housing bodies uh, in the last number of decades. But, but that's, that's the principle of it. To, to get there from where we are? You know, it's yeah. like <laughs> it's all very well, but how do we get there? Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, if we if we keep on the trajectory we're on, and we're being told now the housing for all plan. Obviously, we're looking, we're hearing about those targets all the time. We're at what thirty thirty thousand mm-hmm. units a year. They're saying go up to thirty five thousand. We're saying perhaps we need up to fifty thousand. The numbers you're hearing, the policies you're 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 seeing, w- will they take us to a place where we can dig ourselves out of this hole? In your view, there seems to be a sort of contradiction between kind of you know why a developer might develop a parcel of land and under what circumstances and the amount that they can gain either in terms of selling that parcel or then, you know, the, the rent that they can gain. And so, that, you know, the, the urban economists say, you know, that the more we build and greater, you know, you kind of promote densification, that then the, the rents will come down. But in whose interests is it for rents to come down? And, and so there seems to be a kind of a fundamental contradiction there. Uh, sorry, can I just stop you there? Because that's a really interesting point because it's made, it's clearly made, yeah, that we just, that more supply will, will equal more affordable housing. Yeah. And obviously that didn't happen when we were building 90,000 units a year. That's true as well, yeah. Um, but as you say, it's a fundamental uh, thing. Why would why would builders be driving towards a situation where their return would be fundamentally undermined? Yeah, exactly. And the more you're reliant and the more it's financialized and then it, this stuff is sort of externalized somewhere else and there's pressures in terms of the amount of yield that they can gain, the more that that's going to reproduce itself over time. Um, and the other element is there's a, a sort of a, an assumption that, and this goes back to, it actually, you know, I suppose in a, in a way, it has its origins earlier than in a US context, but, it, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, 
the notion of filtering, and, and, and you see quite a lot of discussion, the Financial Times had a discussion around this, you know, it's a sort of notion of more high-end housing suits everyone. Um, but there's, there's really kind of problematic, it's really problematic in terms of its assumptions, you know. So if we take somewhere like, you know, some of the newer developments in Bulls Bridge, where you get really, really high-end developments that are being, that are being built, uh, the assumption then that somebody is going to move into that and then vacate another premises elsewhere, and then there's a sort of a chain that goes downwards. Um, first of all, it kind of it doesn't take into account the extent to which these these spaces are being bought, and then you know are, are essentially just can can be left vacant. Now, that's hard to measure, but but fundamentally, you know, even if the system does work, it's it's essentially saying that the worst housing would go to the poorest people. Can I just two other things? Big policy changes that are coming. There's there's a new planning. A massive yeah. planning bill that's just been go, uh, gone through yeah. cabinet, got cabinet approval. It's about nimbyism, as we we call it, mm-hmm. and this whole idea that there's too many judicial reviews and we need to, you know, somehow speed up the planning process and that this will improve things uh, dramatically. Mm-hmm. What's your view on that? I think the nimbyism thing, you know, nimbyism is a really interesting term because again, when it's utilised, does it, does it, it emerged in the 1970s to describe kind of things around kind of waste and so on and kind of ecological kind of issues. And then it's also used by Mike Davis, an, an author writing about Los Angeles in the 1980s, talks about it, uh, you know, and, and uses it to identify, you know, wealthy individuals trying to essentially restrict housing within their area. And so it's always about the precision of, of the use of a term. It, it's been overstretched in, in recent years, I, I, I would argue, where there is a set of assumptions that if you are interested in one type of housing model and you want to try and promote that type of housing model and you're opposed to, you know, kind of say built to rent, you are therefore labeled as a NIMBY. And this comes from some of the debates that are happening online. It comes from some of the debates that are happening in terms of grounded examples. But in terms of the, the you know, the kind of the, the nitty gritty of it in an Irish context, it's used to describe so-called opposition to, to developments. Uh, the term sometimes that's used in terms of a, a planning application, for example, is, is, is objection when actually the correct term is an observation. So everybody is entitled to make an observation on, on a planning application. Um, you know, so in terms of data, you know, so let's say, for example, in 2021, there was 38,314 planning, app- planning applications made and 88.5% were granted planning permissions. Is that, you know, I mean, can we really turn around and say that NIMBYs are blocking housing when, that, when that's the stat? I'm, I'm just getting. What are you? Are you saying that we don't need this? Let's this this new. Well, I'm saying that the NIMBYism thing. You know, again, I don't. You know, I don't deal with legislation all that much. But in terms of you know its impact on legislation would really interest me. And you know, I, I would watch and listen to the discourse quite actively around the term NIMBY. And then you look at kind of what's actually happening. So the term was used to again as a justification for the the fast track planning, and then that comes in, and then that ends up in the courts, and so that's a kind of a case of shooting yourself in the foot. Because there was an attempt essentially to sidetrack what is one of the only kind of forms of democratic engagement we can have in terms of the developmentizing. And then it ends up actually, it, it, I would argue, backfiring. Okay. One more upfront question before I let you go, Philip. Sure. One more. Give me a number again. Uh, this time I will go 12. Name one regret you have in life. Could you ask for all the deep ones today, Philip? <laughs> one regret you have in life. I don't have any. I was going to say, you're allowed not have any. Yeah, no, you're a very you're a happy man. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we make decisions, I think, and it kind of guides us down uh, particular paths. Uh, Philip, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Really, really interesting chat. Uh, We'll have to do it again. Thank you very much. And that was Philip Lawton. Thanks, Philip. And thanks for listening to the Upfront podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, 
you can message us on social media at RTE Upfront or via WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is 087 677 And don't forget to tune in to Upfront on Monday evening at 10.35 on RTE One and on the RTE Player. I'll talk to you then. <laughs>